The God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped. hundreds in Yunnan and young missionary James Frazier looked on with difficulty at the the scene before him the Lisu people were preparing for their sword ladder festival so there's this ladder of knives that goes up 40 feet high sacrifices were being offered to some ugly looking idols the devil dancer bit through a neck of a chicken. Looks like that chicken would be sacrificed. And that night, the devil dancer cleansed his, his bare hands and feet with red-hot coals in order to prepare for the ceremony. So the next day, he would walk up and down the ladder of knives. Two other young men also walked up and down this knife ladder. And then a third person, a woman, attempted and it was too hard and painful and gave up. James Fraser could tell that the people watching didn't enjoy this experience. They watched in fear. The gods had to be appeased. So at the end of the day, what was James Fraser doing here? He was a graduate of the Imperial College London, he was a talented pianist. He had been rejected twice when applying to serve with the China Inland Mission because of an ear infection they feared would worsen. So who was young James Fraser to stand against the gods of Yunnan? If James Fraser's god was only god of the hills of England, then would he dare confront the gods of the Lisu people. And I think you can guess which God James Fraser worshipped. He was a Christian. He worshipped the true God and had come to Lisu land to tell them about Jesus. Now James Fraser himself stood no chance against the gods of the Lisu. But the gods of the Lisu stood no chance against the God of the universe. James Fraser's story leads us to our story today, a story in which the true God makes himself known among the nations. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. The passage is quite long for this morning, so it would be of help to you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. As you turn there, remember where we are in the story of 1 Samuel. Israel has just suffered a crushing defeat. Eli and his sons have died. And most importantly, the, the Ark of God has been taken from Israel. From the perspective of the Philistines, it would seem that not only Israel, but Israel's God had been soundly defeated. 
But Israel's God cannot be defeated. Even in his punishment of Israel in the last chapter, God was working out his plan. And in chapters 5 and 6, God continues to move in mighty ways. So before jumping into our story, I'd like to start with a main point that you can continue to consider. And that main point is this. The God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped. The God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped. In looking at our text today, it might be helpful for you to imagine a, watching a movie. A movie in five scenes. Each scene of this movie gives us a unique perspective on our main point. So this five scenes structure will be the outline for the sermon. We'll take one scene at a time and work through the story in this way. So scene one, the Ark at Ashdod. Here we'll be looking at verses 1 to 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they arose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Remember back to the Philistines' response in chapter 4 when they heard that the Israelites were bringing the Ark of the Lord into battle. The Philistines were afraid. They cried out, Woe to us! And fought all the harder because they believed that the God of Israel would fight for Israel. But fast forward to the Philistine victory. It makes sense that they would assume that the God of Israel has been defeated. The God of Israel has been captured and would now be under the rule of of their god, Dagon, the big daddy of the Philistine gods. And when I say big daddy, I'm partly serious. There's ancient literature that would point to Dagon being worshipped as the father of the god Baal, who you may remember from other places in scripture. In a time in history when people generally believed in territorial gods who ruled over certain areas, Surely the God of Israel would be powerless in Dagon's own temple. But the Philistines had no idea who they were dealing with. So imagine the scene. The, the Philistines captured the ark and set it before Dagon. For them, from their perspective, it's as if the Israelites' God has been taken captive. But the next day, early in the morning, they look and their idol of Dagon has fallen face down on the ground. The Philistines didn't think they needed to bow before the God of Israel, but apparently Dagon did. And of course, Dagon is a statue. Like you would think, oh, this powerful God, but uh, 
he can't get up by himself. And so, I don't know how many guys it took to lift Dagon back up on his feet. One may wonder if the Philistines lifting their, their helpless God out of his humiliating position would, would think twice about how powerful their God was. But by the end of the day, Dagon's back where he's supposed to be. The Philistines of Ashdod can go back to their beds. But the next morning, Dagon's fallen down again. And this time, his arms and his head are cut off. They're cut off at the threshold. The threshold in ancient times was often seen as a place of judgment. The God of Israel had not only humiliated Dagon, but he had executed Dagon. It's sadly comical to read verse 5. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The Philistines would continue to believe in their humiliated, executed idol. They would treat the place where Dagon's arms had fallen off like a holy place. So it makes me wonder, what were those priests thinking? So how does scene one help us look at our main point? The God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped. So how does God make his glory known here? He does it by showing that, that God wins. God makes abundantly clear that the God of Israel had not been defeated by the gods of the Philistines. God didn't need an army to fight for him. And in an act of judgment against a false god, God makes his glory known to the Philistines. God forces the idol Dagon to an appropriate response of bowing prostrate on day one with execution on day two. And yet the Philistines do not respond in worship, do they? Instead, the priests continue to pitifully avoid stepping on the area where their God lay. And so in this scene, God is not worshipped as he should be, but we're reminded that there will be a day when either willing or unwilling, everyone, every knee will bow before God. In the end, every false God will be judged. So brothers and sisters, you, you probably don't have a, a statue of an idol on your shelf. But do you recognize the absolute authority of God over all other gods? We cannot worship a false god, whether it's money or sex or power, and invite the true God into one area of our life and have our own little temple with our own little gods on the side. So do we have idols in our life? Do we have idols in our life that we act like are, are off-limits to the God of the universe. We pray that God would help us decapitate our idols, that our idols would bow before the true God. Our idols cannot be treated like pets that we spoil and take care of when, we, when they're humiliated, we prop them back up again. The fact that we think we need to take care of our idols shows how powerless they really are. But our idols must continue to be seen as worthless compared to the true God. 
And so like the Apostle John says at the end of the book of 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's move on to scene two of our story. Scene two, the hand of God in verses 6 to 12. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought round to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it round, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought round to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So God's not only going to judge the Philistine God, God's going to judge the Philistines. One can imagine the Philistines coming back, parading the ark around like a prize of war. Look what we got. We captured Israel's most prized possession. We defeated Israel's God. But nothing could be further from the case. God would not allow that kind of dishonor of his name. If you look at verses 6 to 12, it's interesting to note the repeated phrase, the hand of the Lord or the hand of God. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines. God's presence has left Israel. So the wife of Phinehas mourned. The, the glory has departed from Israel. But God's presence has come to the land of the Philistines in order to judge. So we trace the travels of the ark. In verse 6, the ark is in Ashdod. The people are, are terrified and afflicted with tumors. Some the, think these tumors may have been something like the bubonic plague carried by rats, since mice are mentioned in chapter 6. We don't know for sure, but whatever disease it was, it was excruciatingly painful, and it often resulted in death. Whatever disease it was, God was behind it. The men of Ashdod did not want the ark anywhere close to them. So the leaders of the Philistines have this great idea of bringing the ark of God to another city. So they bring the ark of God to Gath. And the same thing happens there. More death, more tumors. You can imagine the entire city in panic. And so the people of Gath want this ark far away from them. They send it to Ekron. And the people come out of Ekron hearing this rumor that the ark of the God of Israel is coming. The people come out of Ekron 
to stop it from coming in. They look at this almost like an act of civil war. The people of Gath are bringing the Ark of God to kill all of us. And so the people of Ekron say, please return the Ark of God to its own place so it doesn't just kill everybody. There is a deathly panic. The scene ends by saying that the, the cry of the city went up to heaven. When the Ark had left Israel, the Israelites were defeated in battle. The, the whole city cried out. Here now that the hand of God is wreaking havoc on the Philistines, the whole city also is crying out. One city cried out for God's presence had left in judgment. One city cried out for God's presence had come in judgment. So how does scene two help us see that the God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped? In this scene, God's glory is met with fear. I think we see a road towards acknowledgement of who God is. So far in our story, no one is worshiping God rightly. Scene one still shows the Philistines paying respects to their decapitated idol. But in this scene, there's fear of God's power in response to God's glory displayed. The people naturally are panicking. They don't know what to do. Unless they change their response to God, perhaps all the Philistines will be destroyed. And so they cry out to heaven. For us today, I wonder when fear can be a good thing. And I think a right fear can be a good beginning. But it needs to be a right fear that is rightly directed. In the battle with the Israelites, the Philistines feared that the Israelites would be victorious because they thought Israel's God was going into battle. But the Israelites didn't realize what the was that the Israelites were not what the Philistines didn't realize what the, was that the Israelites were not properly fearing God. They were treating God almost like a, a magic genie. And God would not be used in that way. So the Philistines had no need to fear Israel, but they needed to fear the God of Israel. Notice as well that the Philistines clearly see that it is the ark of God that is causing panic in their cities. They know why this great plague has come. It's come from God. How does that transfer to our day and age? The people around us greatly fear death today. Consider the, the first responses as we heard about this mysterious COVID-19 that was spreading. The attempts to stop the disease were attempts to stop death from spreading. But could it be that many of us today are, are less clear in our thinking than the Philistines? Yes, death and disease are a result of the fall. But when death and disease spread among the nations, shouldn't that cause the nations to be, or to begin to be afraid? Shouldn't that cause governments to realize that they're not in control? And we're so quick to forget, aren't we? We're so quick to sweep under the rug the fear of 
whether it was COVID-19 or other diseases, when the danger is past, it's easy for us to forget. But as death and destruction have come on this world at different times, I, I pray that more and more people would ask themselves, who, who is it that I'm fearing? Do I fear a disease just because it could take away my life on this earth? Or do I fear the God who, at death, decides my eternal destiny? God's glory made known in his judgment can be a difficult thing to consider. But this display of God's glory is mercy in and of itself. A nation that did not know God is confronted by God's power. Fear of COVID is mostly a thing of the past now. But perhaps COVID and other sicknesses have been God's mercy in reminding us of the reality of death. And thinking on death and eternity can be of such great help in reorienting how we think on life. Ultimately, death is not the main enemy to be afraid of. If you're not a Christian, God's judgment in hell is worse than death. So if you're not a Christian and you're afraid of death, let that be a motivator to start asking questions. What is it that Christians mean when we talk about eternal life? And Christian, how can you come alongside those who are living in fear, holding out the hope of the gospel? Let's move on to scene three. What to do with the ark? Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us 
by coincidence. So the Philistines don't know what to do. It's been a long seven months that the ark has been in their country. They know they must send it back. But they realize they're dealing with Israel's God, and they don't really know how God thinks, so they ask their priests to come and help out. The priests and diviners say they must send a guilt offering. The guilt offering is quite unique. Five golden tumors and five golden mice. Yeah, I wonder what those five golden tumors looked like. I think we must remember that these priests don't actually have any idea what kind of guilt offering would please the true God. And yet they're on the right track in knowing that there must be a guilt offering. They know that they must admit their guilt. They've heard the stories of the Egyptians and Pharaoh, and, and they begin to realize they don't want to make the same mistake that Pharaoh made. And yet the priests and diviners also want to test God. They're not... 100% certain that this sickness and death is attributed to the God of Israel, and so they make a test. Two milk cows with their calves taken away from them will pull the ark with the God of Israel on it. Of course, two milk cows separated from their calves would naturally go to find their calves. On top of that, these two milk cows have never pulled a cart before. So we're not talking about oxen. We're talking about milk cows. So getting two milk cows together to walk in a straight line away from their babies sounds like a miracle. But if the God of Israel wants his art to go back to Israel, he can make a miracle happen. So how does scene three Help us see that the God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped. God has made his glory known very clearly in the past two scenes. And in this section, we're also reminded that the Philistines are aware that God made his glory known in Egypt. Verse 5 says that the priests and the diviners say to the leaders of the Philistines, they should give glory to the God of Israel. They have some understanding that the God of Israel deserves glory. So is God being rightly worshipped? Not yet. But in this scene, we do see the Philistines rightly acknowledge their guilt. They know they have offended God. And at the same time, though, they're still testing God. They're still not 100% sure that this is the work of the God of Israel. So we see a good beginning. There's still a ways to go. It still falls short of true worship. I wonder how many of those priests and diviners, after helping the Philistine leaders make those decisions, just went back to leading the Philistines in worship of their false gods. That's a, a sad thought. So what should that cause us to consider today? 
in one sense, it brings us back to the failure of Israel in being distinct as a people to witness to the glories of God. And so God himself goes out of his way on his own to display his glory among the Philistines. Today, as the true children of Abraham, our task is to attest to the glories of God among the nations. I'm reminded of a short, helpful John Piper quote. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The goal of missions is the true worship of God. That's what brought James Fraser to Yunnan. That's what's brought perhaps some of you across an ocean. And that may bring some of you to other places, to those who have never heard the gospel. God is glorious. He deserves all worship. So let us be people who help others see his glory. So how can we grow in being a church that's sold out for the task of missions? What would it look like for us to be a healthy sending church? It's not because God needs us. God could fight the Philistines better without the Israelites' involvement. And yet God chooses to use us, his people, as proclaimers of his word and proclaimers of his glory. If people are not taught about God from his word, how are they to respond rightly to him? How are they to know that making golden tumors and golden mice is not enough? So do our hearts break for the many who have never heard the gospel, not only because of compassion towards them, but ultimately because we want to see God worshipped. Jesus told his disciples to pray for workers to go out into the harvest field. So is that our prayer as well? Are we willing, are we willing to both be faithful where we are in proclaiming the gospel? And are we willing to move on from here to proclaim the gospel if that is what God would have us do? Let's move on to scene four, the return of the ark. Please look with me at chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. The men did so, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it. 
in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beshemesh. I think the beginning of this scene is the climax of our story this morning. We trace the path of the ark. First, there was their confusion and the decision of the Philistines to send the ark back to Israel. Then there was a plan to test God with a method of delivery. And finally, here we get to see what happened. If we're filming this as a movie, we would start this scene still in the country of the Philistines as the men yoked up the milk cows, put the ark of the Lord on the cart. The camera would then pan to the open country of, of Beth Shemesh. And we can hear the cows mooing. And we watch as the cows go straight to Beth Shemesh. There's no question that the Lord is directing the steps of the cows. As we're watching the cows and the ark of the Lord, we would see that the lords of the Philistines have, have also followed, perhaps they're way behind, kind of timidly watching. And the camera pans to the people of Beth Shemesh. They see the ark of the Lord and they, they rejoice. They're so happy to see it. For seven long months, the ark of God was in enemy territory, and now it has returned to Israel. They're reminded that God has not abandoned his people. And so the people of Beshemesh get busy to, to have a, a celebratory sacrifice to the true God. The cows are first sacrificed as a burnt offering to the Lord. The people of Israel understood what the Philistines did not, that there had to be a, a blood sacrifice. And this time, no Hophni and Phinehas around to steal the fat first. So Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and set it up on a great stone. And that day, burnt offerings and sacrifices were made to the Lord. The camera pans back to see the five lords of the Philistines return to Ekron. But the Ark of the Lord still sits on the rock at Beth Shemesh. What a story. All of this waiting all of this following the Ark of the Covenant around, and now the Ark of the Lord is back in the country of Israel. So at the climax, we see hope for the people of Israel. We also see the Philistines satisfied that their job is done, return to their land. Sadly, it would seem that the Philistines simply return to their old life as normal. There's some knowledge of who God is, but we don't get to see continued repentance. So how does scene four show, show us that God, who makes his glory known, must be rightly worshipped? 
God displays his glory, his power, his sovereignty, even in guiding cows to bring his ark back to Israel. And then in this section, we see worship of God. We see a right rejoicing that, that God's ark has returned. For the follower of God, God's presence is great reason to rejoice. And we see sacrifices made. We see the cows sacrificed as a burnt offering to the Lord, and we see that day was a day for the men of Beth Shemesh to offer sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. With great joy, the people of Beth Shemesh could sacrifice. And yet at this high point in the story, at this point where we see the cows being sacrificed to the Lord, I wonder if it's difficult for us to think and remember, to catch the significance of the blood sacrifice here. I think we must look at the sacrifice of the two cows and ask ourselves, could that be enough? It seems to be the appropriate response, even though it was not done at the temple. And yet consider how great Israel's sin was. Israel had dishonored God by taking his ark into battle like a lucky charm. After that grave of a sin, could God be pleased by the sacrifice of two cows? If we just filmed a movie of chapters 5 and 6 and the first two verses of 7, it could really be quite a movie but it would be missing the fact that these chapters are, are one short scene in the story of the Bible. Because we look at this joyous scene at Beth Shemesh, and we realize the temple is still not in the picture. The priests are still not in the picture after the striking down of Hophni and Phinehas. Yes, God is accepting this day's worship, but there's still so much lacking. And so we zoom ahead in the scriptures and we find ourselves in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, verses 4 to 6, we read this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings... And sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And so we see in the book of Hebrews that a sacrifice of cows cannot take away sins, ultimately. God has not ultimately taken pleasure in these burnt offerings and sin offerings, but there was someone who God would take pleasure in. God would take pleasure in the one who would come to do his will. That's what we read in Hebrews 10, verse 7, that Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And Jesus perfectly did God's will. Jesus was perfectly holy. Jesus was sinless. And so Jesus could offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So brothers and sisters, look, look past this sacrifice of cows and look to Jesus. He's the reason that we're not 
sacrificing cows on a Sunday morning today. He's the reason that we can boldly be in God's presence, that we can take full delight in God's presence, knowing that the sacrifice of Jesus makes us holy in God's sight. So brothers and sisters, that is the message for us today, and that is the message of salvation that we're to share with our neighbors and friends. It's impossible that the blood sacrifices of animals to take away sin, it's impossible for the blood sacrifices of animals to take away sin. But the blood sacrifice of Jesus, as he offered up his own life, is sufficient to cover all our sins. So praise God for his son Jesus. The non-Christians around us not only need to fear God and recognize their guilt, as we talked about previously, but the message doesn't stop there. There is a way for guilt to be taken away in the person of Jesus Christ. What a joyful message that we bear. Jesus is how God has made his glory known in this world. It is because of Jesus that we can go before God and worship him. And there's part of me that, that wants to end right here. That would be a, a fairly happy place to end. But there's one more scene in this story. Scene five. All is not well. Look with me at First Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 to 7, verse 2. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So what just happened here? Seventy men died for staring at or possibly even into the ark of the Lord. The translation simply, the translation seems to point to simply looking at the ark of the Lord. If this understanding is correct, it's, it's quite possible that the ark of the Lord was not appropriately covered resulting in this punishment. The sons of Kohath and the tribe of Levi were responsible for the coverings of the ark. And the ark is always meant to be honored rightly. Uh, the possibility of death because of how the ark is mistreated is mentioned more than once in, in Numbers chapter 4. So our story soared with blood sacrifices to the true God, with joy at seeing the Ark of the Covenant return. But now we look at the actions of the Israelites, and, and we look at God's judgment on the Israelites. 
And it sounds strangely like God's judgment on the Philistines. Except the Israelites should know how the ark should be treated. It was the Levites who took the ark down in verse 15. Surely the Levites could give some instruction on on what should happen to the ark. Just as God punished the Philistines, God punishes the Israelites for their reverence of the ark. And just as the Philistines of Ashdod wanted the ark sent somewhere else, the Israelites of Beth Shemesh want the ark sent somewhere else. They know that God is holy, and they can't handle it. So going back to our theme statement, how does scene five show us that the God who makes his glory known must be rightly worshipped? The Israelites get something right here. They understand God's holiness. They respond by asking, who can stand before God? But their their response to this right understanding that God is holy is wrong. Instead of wanting to still draw near to God in fear and trembling, they want God to be far from them. Part of rightly worshiping God involves entering God's presence. It does involve entering God's presence with awe, with with fear, and with trembling. But these Israelites are so afraid of God's presence that they want to send the ark away. Brothers and sisters, do you ever have a similar attitude towards God? Do you ever think to yourself, oh, God God is too holy. I don't want him to get too close. And yes, God is holy. But because of what Jesus has done, you are free to enter into God's presence. When God sees the Christian, he sees someone who has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And so there's a proper boldness that God gives Christians to approach him. So think about heaven. What makes heaven heaven is that we get to continually be in God's presence. Imagine that when we die and go to heaven, that God makes us completely holy. There will be a day when we have no sin and we'll never commit sin again. Our job in heaven will be to worship God. I don't think that necessarily means we'll be always singing. Perhaps we'll have heavenly versions of of certain jobs. But we will be worshiping God with our whole heavenly lives. The true and holy God welcomes us into his presence now and will one day welcome us into his presence for all eternity. But our story ends with a sad sense of longing. The Ark of God is at the house of someone in Kiriath, Jerem. But that's not where the Ark should be. And the passage ends with the words that all of Israel lamented after the Lord. The Ark was back in Israel, but there was still much that was wrong in the land. The ark was given a temporary priest named Eliezer. But the ark was not at Israel's central point of worship, central place of worship. 
historically at this time, it's also possible that the Philistines had attacked Shiloh in the meantime. I'm not sure exactly, but there are a couple passages that mention Shiloh later in Scripture. Israel still longed for when God would make things right again. And that should be our longing today as well. There's still much wrong in our land and in our world today. The sins of this world should cause us to lament. And in the meantime, we want to be striving each day to rightly worship God. As Christians, we are meant to be living sacrifices, giving up our, our whole lives to worship God. So that looks like being willing to sacrifice everything for God. That looks like living lives that are obedient to God. That looks like taking holiness seriously because God is holy. Does our fear of God and our, our knowledge of His holiness spur us on to worshiping God with our whole lives? Do we pursue holiness with, with reckless abandon? Right worship of God must affect every area of our lives. God will protect his name, and he expects holiness from his people. It's scary how the sins that characterize non-believers still creep up into the lives of Christians. Let's allow a fear of God and an understanding of his holiness strengthen us to put to death sin in our lives. Let's allow what we see about God's character in the pages of Scripture cause us to feel the, the weight and importance of living holy lives. The Christian life of worship is meant to be lived for God. That's what had motivated James Frazier to go to the mountains of Yunnan. Now, after reading our story today, we might expect some sort of immediate judgment as James Frazier watched the devil dancers of Yunnan. But at that time, God brought no plague of judgment on the Lisu people. For James Frazier, witnessing the Sword Ladder Festival simply reminded him of the demonic hold over the Lisu people that the evil spirits had. Only by God's power could there be true worship. And it took time. Frazier saw many of the Lisu make some sort of profession of faith only to fall back into idolatry the minute there was danger or sickness. There were many instances where there was not true repentance. So it was still a long road ahead for the young missionary. But God, using his servant James Fraser, using several others who shared the gospel in that land, made his good news known to the Lisu people. God continued to show to the Lisu that he is the almighty and compassionate God. Other gods cannot stand a chance against him. And today there are many Christians among the Lisu people of Yuma. And to think that just over a hundred years ago, the Lisu knew less about 
the God of the Bible than the Philistines did. So brothers and sisters, God will make his glory known among the nations. He sent Jesus Christ as a blood sacrifice for our sins so that through Jesus every nation would be blessed with knowledge of his name. From the mountains of Yunnan to the jungles of Papua New Guinea, from the streets of Shanghai to the deserts of the Middle East, God will make his name known. Let's praise him for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you have made your glory known. And the fullness of your glory is in Jesus Christ. God, you have shown us who you are in Christ. God, you are the only true God. Father, we pray that we would fear you rightly, that we would have an attitude of, of worship and of awe and reverence of you in how we gather as a church and in how we live our lives throughout the week. Father, would we also be bold in, in telling others about who you are? Father, continue to change us, continue to shape us, be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.